Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to ELI's inaugural episode. My name is Cassandra, and we are so excited to present this new medium to our ELI audience. This first episode features our president, Scott Fulton, and our director of the Technology, Innovation and Environment Project, Dave Rajeski. They'll be discussing a new paradigm for environmental protection. We hope you enjoy the discussion and can't wait to show you what our organization has to offer. Stay tuned for more podcasts and thanks for listening. Okay, so this is Scott Fulton. I'm the, the president of the Environmental Law Institute. Uh, I'm Dave Rajeski, and I direct the uh, Technology, Innovation, and Environment program at the Environmental Law Institute. And on this podcast today, we're talking about a paper that uh, Dave and I put out called A New Environmentalism, The Need for a Total Strategy for Environmental Protection. Uh, which was uh, published in the Environmental Law Reporter in the September 2018 edition. So I'm talking about this. Dave, uh, uh, why don't you talk about the inspiration for the paper? Um, uh, you kind of pushed us to um, move beyond some of the speechifying that both of us found ourselves doing around this space to trying to reduce um, this message into something uh, coherent. Um, you want to talk about that a bit? Sure. Um, so I think it was hard for me to actually deconstruct where this came from because I've thought thought about it in, in bits and pieces. I think one important piece was a, an article or a survey I did uh, actually for an article in Environmental Forum in 2011. Uh, it was called, Are There Any Big Ideas Left? And uh, it basically, I, I interviewed uh, and surveyed about 250 environmental scientists, lawyers, political scientists, and just asked the question, where, are there any big ideas left in, in the environmental space? And uh, we actually were able to graph those out. And we did another round and actually had people sort of go through and pick them in terms of importance. Uh, what we found was probably not surprising is most of them happened between 1970 and 1980. Um, there was a small cluster that appeared uh, the early 1990s. These were things like the Pollution Prevention Act, some of the early work on sustainable development. But largely when, when asked, you know, where are the big ideas? What did we do that really pushed the environment along? Um, most people kind of go back to this cluster of legal activity and things like the low-hanging fruit, getting rid of lead and gasoline, the Montreal Protocol. Um, and so it, it, that was kind of the beginning of, of a lot of uh, sort of my thinking about, well, who's in charge of pushing the, the ideas forth? And, and we started with this interesting quote from Edmund Muskie. Uh, at the first Earth Day, if we need a total strategy for the total sort of total environmental protection. Um, and if you think back, I mean, it's it's hard to go back that far. But you know, this was 1970 when the internet had just been invented, right? And, and we were watching films like Midnight Cowboy, which people probably don't remember at all. Uh, Bill Gates was uh, I do <laughs> five years from starting, you know, starting his uh, starting Microsoft. So this was a long time ago. And, and I think the, one of the things that I went back and thought about was, 
did we actually have a total strategy? And I, and I think there was one, and it appeared in a, a piece of legislation called the National Environmental Policy Act. And we had an office that was designed to implement that, um, and that was the Council on Environmental Quality. Um, and I think that was, an er it was very interesting to see kind of what the evolution of that was next to EPA, which then evolved and, and obviously became, this wasn't the initial uh, design for EPA, but it became very focused on, on media, on air, water, land, and, and also the associated laws. And that accomplished a lot, but then the question is whether uh, we kind of ran out of steam. That was the question I was asking in this 2011 piece, which I picked up a few months ago and wrote about and passed to you. Mm. Uh, I guess for me, um, the this body of thought started to form through a combination of experiences. One is uh, uh, my time in, in government, and both Dave and I did spend time at the Environmental Protection Agency. I ended up spending quite a lot of time there, um, wrapping up as a general counsel of the agency. So I, I was deeply involved in the governmental side of this equation and uh, the administration of these programs and how they work, trying to figure out how to do that part of the work more smartly, more efficiently, more effectively. Um, but when I when I retired from government and went into private practice um, of law, uh, I had a chance to work with uh, with companies that uh, uh, which I found um, had moved a great distance um, from where we started on the environmental question uh, to today um, and. Uh, uh, in a way that uh, was more significant than I had understood while I was in government and uh, in a way that had its own power and energy and thrust. So I, I became very interested in this question of private environmental governance and the, the um, momentum within the private sector, uh, not only to maintain compliance with environmental law but also uh, to adhere to this growing number of sustainability ideals um, which had companies really moving ahead of government and in very significant and meaningful and durable ways uh, driven more by uh, shareholder demand, customer, customer demand, supply chain expectations and those sorts of things uh, that anything uh, government was saying to them. So I thought, well, that's, that seems to be a very important trend. How does that relate to what's happening on the, on the government side? Uh, the other um, dawning for me came from some work I was doing with the World Justice Pro Project um, uh, that uh, centered around the possible contribution of technology uh, to solving justice issues, particularly in the developing world. So that was the beginning of an introduction um, that uh, would ultimately leave me to thinking about um, uh, the contribution of, of low-cost sensor technology um, to environmental performance and environmental behaviors, um, the contribution of social media uh, sharing platforms for data that's generated through technologies like these, and how these can themselves be powerful engines for change. So uh, increasingly I found myself talking about environmental governance in a way that, um, uh, that paid attention to these other emerging trends, what I saw in the private sector, uh, 
um, but also what seemed to be emerging in the technology space. And Dave will recall that for a while I was talking about this as a three-legged stool, and uh, Dave, to his credit, said, well, I think there may actually be a fourth dimension to this, and maybe we'll do better if we talk about it as something other than a, a stool. Um, that uh, uh, So uh, we, we started working on a, a diagram that plays a fairly important role in the article that, uh, that we've written um, that tries to describe um, this, um, these, uh, this emerging ecosystem of drivers of, of environmental performance. I think one of the things that um, sort of struck me when I was, this was back in the early 90s, is I, I had a, a graph that I'd gotten from the Defense Department um, from, from DARPA, and basically the folks there had just figured out of the 8 billion computer chips we generated that year, how many were in com sort of computers and it was about 5%. And so I, you know, people were asking, where are the rest of them, right? And of course, they were in your phone, they were in your toaster. Um, and the defense folks had this concept that these were stranded intelligence, and the next big age of sort of the internet was going to be hooking all of these things up. And this became the internet of things that we have today. Um, and and I was doing that, it was, it was also, I think, at a time when there were people at EPA and in NGOs and in the environmental community that were thinking about a lot of the problems that we'd solve were stationary, and now we have essentially uh, an information system that's embedded in this network. It's an incredible opportunity, I think, staring the environmental community in the face right now and figuring out how we do it and who does it um, was, I think, also one of the motivations for that article. And so there's part of that graph is it's all about going from hierarchies to networks. But that's the next frontier, and I think we're, we're, we're positioned right there. But then the question becomes, who's thinking about that, and how do we drive a conversation? So it's interesting, I think, just in the time we put this article out to see people's responses to this, mm -hmm. which I think have been largely positive. Right. Um, but it's become kind of a, a Rorschach test. <laughs> <laughs> And at the conclusion so far is we're not completely mad, um, and that, uh, that that folks seem to be seeing uh, what what we're seeing, um, and appreciate the effort to stitch it together. But maybe I can try to describe uh, what we've we're, we've constructed here in this what we're calling a new ecosystem of drivers. Uh, we're basically uh, we've we've got this thing divided into four quadrants. The four elements that that we're seeing um, uh, include both a, a driver and kind of a resulting system for environmental performance uh, behaviors. Um, so uh, uh, one driver is law, and uh, the the system that emerges from the law driver is really public environmental governance and variations of that that uh, is ministered by government itself. Um, the second element is uh, is risk management, and in particular financial and reputational risk management. That's the driver and the resulting system is private environmental governance. And what we mean when we use those terms is uh, systems that emerge within the private sector um, that, um, that are self-regulating in effect, 
um, and uh, can extend beyond self-regulation to regulation of business affiliates and business relationships, um, supply chain management, and that sort of thing. Uh, all kind of driven um, by the, the need uh, within the private sector to manage against risk, whether that risk is financial or reputational. Um, the third element that we talk about is technology. Um, and, uh, and here we're really talking about technology systems that are kind of self-contained, that are capable of uh, both monitoring um, and correcting um, uh, for environmental uh, problems. Um, and uh, you know, Dave uh, pointed to a wonderful example of such a system in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Dave, you want to you want to describe that system because I think it is a good illustration of the idea. Yeah, this is a, a system of, of sensors that have been installed up in the uh, Sierra Nevada mountains, uh, which provides a lot of the the uh, the water for California. Everybody thinks about the mountains, and for years the uh, the Forest Service would send people up there on snowshoes with backpacks, and they would have sticks, and they would drive the sticks through the snow to see how thick the snowpack was, because that was a pretty good predictor of how much water you're going to end up with in the springtime, and that water had to be distributed somehow between you know generation of power, agriculture, and drinking water. Um, and about, I think 10 years ago, I started following a project where the sticks were replaced by sensors and the students would go up and put these things out and now it's become I think the largest monitored hydrological watershed in the world and the sensors were all connected to one another so and this is a real problem if the bear attacked the sensor or sometimes they would get mice in there they would chew them up a sensor would understand that it was its health was impaired and it would hook up to it you know it sort of drops out and either repairs itself or um, they they jump over to another sensor, so it's what people call a mesh network. Um, and so they had essentially data from the past on how turn, how good they were in using snowpack to predict runoff, and now they've been using this mesh network to do the same work. Uh, and they've gotten much, much better actually at predicting how much water will be available in the spring through a distributed sensor system that has embedded uh, artificial intelligence. So it's monitoring its own health. It's determining, you know, how accurate the predictions might be based on past data. It's updating the data, um, and so I think this is one example of, you know, almost a self-regulating system, or a lot of manual labor to do. Uh, but we now use, you know, sensors and networks and artificial intelligence. Um, so I think that's just one example. But mm -hmm. we're going to see more and more of those distributed network systems, uh, and this is a great one because it's this is something that people in California, if you grew up there. And this is something that's very important to them. And so this is one way of actually figuring out where's the water going to be, how to predict it, and how much will we have to distribute between the agricultural sector, uh, hydropower generation, and people who need it at their taps. So just to complete our walk through the these four elements in this ecosystem of drivers, the other driver that we see uh, we're calling um, communities. Um, but we're, we're thinking in particular about online communities um, and the, the system that, uh, that emerges in this space is uh, what we're describing as big data sharing platforms. The idea that, uh, that environmental information is going to increase in its uh, intensity and volume 
uh, and its accuracy, um, that this information uh, will be uh, more and more accessible um, to the public um, and uh, will find its way um, onto sharing platforms um, in ways that tell stories um, and uh, point to uh, causes uh, and the like. And we think that this will um, increasingly create a pressurized uh, setting uh, that, uh, that calls for response. We call this an ecosystem of drivers because we think these drivers kind of operate like an ecosystem. They're interrelated in a meaningful way. Um, if these uh, autonomous monitoring correction systems work the way they're supposed to work, um, they reduce the need for intervention um, in either the public governance space or the private governance space. Uh, these community uh, drivers and big data sharing platforms uh, will influence the behavior of risk managers who are trying to operate these private environmental governance systems. They'll also uh, put pressure on government uh, to be responsive. Yeah, I think the other, um, the other issue that we, we really didn't, uh, I think, flush out in the article is what are the, what are the implications for existing uh, organizations. It's not just the EPA, but um, you know, we have all of these these laws, the sort of the legacy system. And I think the the one thing that's interesting is is how do you design the interface between the new system and the legacy system? Um, because uh, quite often when new systems appear, they become fairly threatening, or they're perceived as threatening to the old system. Um, the old system tends to want to perpetuate itself I and mean, people get into these competency traps where uh, we do some one or two things really well. The laws worked really well for a while, I believe, and, and they still will continue to work in some cases. Uh, but then all of the financial and human resources uh, end up uh, being channeled into past behaviors. So I think part of the challenge we put out there, which I don't think we answered in the article, is you know, who does what now? Right. What what are the rules for, for government? Uh, what's what a new what would a new EPA look like? And what would it what are the implications for its budget? Um, I think that's a big thing. Uh, and also just human resources management. What kind of people would we hire? And I think the same questions need to be asked in an NGO world, uh, think tank world, that sort of thing. So there's a whole bunch of I think unanswered questions in yeah. that article that uh, it's become kind of an invitation for a dialogue. Uh, ELI, as, a, as part of its mission, is working uh, to build effective governance and rule of law, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. And I think, a, and as part of that, has been involved with, uh, with, uh, with governments like the United States government, um, the European Union, and others, uh, in an effort to build the capacity of governments uh, around the world, especially in the developing world. Um, in the environmental space for decades now. But the interesting question presented by this new ecosystem of drivers is to what extent um, can these new drivers um, compensate um, for government failure that in, in failed states or systems where government functions really are not up to the task or were up to the task and are bumped off of that uh, because of uh, of, of, of political change or, or whatnot, uh, that these other um, drivers um, might provide a sustained source of attention and focus and improvement 
um, for the environment. Yeah, I think some of the, some of the questions that they that they they bring up are the ones we've talked about. Is sort of how do you, even if you get the technology to work in in these large supply chains, or in distributed systems, uh, how does it interact with the the legacy system? So. You know, people are using blockchains to allow you know, people with solar collectors on their homes. Uh, there's one example in Brooklyn now, just to trade electricity among themselves in their neighborhood. Um, so it's something that's really interesting. I'm producing my own electricity. You need some right now. You're down the street. You know, let's, let's basically set up a contract and I'll give you some of my electricity. All of that has to happen inside a public utility space. Um, and of course, the, the utility system sits inside a very large national system that's divided into three sectors, the West and the East and Texas, I think. Um, so that, again, raises this question is even if I have the capacity to uh, allow peer-to-peer trades, uh, it could be with it could be electricity, it could be water uh, in some systems. Um, you know, these, these small sort of networked uh, peer-to-peer systems are going to be inside really large legacy systems that have been around for years that don't want to change. Um, but we're always going to have that, that interface situation, I think, um, is how do we interface the, the kind of the new systems technologically and organizationally and in terms of their market behavior with the old systems. Dave, you'd mentioned that uh, one, of the, um, one of the emerging uh, questions is the impact of this new ecosystem of drivers on uh, on legacy systems, and I'll just mention a report uh, called the Macbeth Report on uh, cooperative federalism. Um, and one of the observations that we'll be making in that report um, is uh, that the role of government needs to be seen contextually at this point, and it needs to be seen in relation to um, uh, the the other elements in this uh, ecosystem of drivers and we'll be making a a few suggestions there about uh, how the governmental role, whether that role is being carried out by the federal government or by state governments or for that matter by local governments, um, can take into account um, and advance the progression of of these other drivers. So be looking for that. Okay, so we're going to wrap up our our conversation today. Uh, Again, we've been talking about an article entitled A New Environmentalism, the Need for a Total Strategy for Environmental Protection um, that uh, Dave Rajewski and uh, I, Scott Fulton, uh, have put out and the Environmental Law Reporter, but it's accessible also uh, online on the ELI website, which is at eli.org. I do think there's also an email link in there if you want to send us comments, critiques, expansions, welcome input at this point in time. Uh, And we thank you very much for your attention today, and thank you, Dave, for being part of the conversation. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.